Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The renowned opera singer-turned-chef and restaurateur Alexander Smalls believes that in the U.S., food and music are inextricably linked, especially in African-American culture. His most recent cookbook is Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen. The appendix to the book contains playlists for each chapter, and he compares a well-stocked pantry to a jukebox. Smalls approaches food with the same excitement he shows for many forms of music, as well as his beloved opera, as we'll hear later this hour. First, speaking of opera, an epic tale of power and intrigue, sex and violence does not refer to Game of Thrones here, Rather, it's how Atlanta Opera Artistic Director Tomers Vuloon describes Julius Caesar, the upcoming production of Handel's opera. The story traces Caesar's love affair with Cleopatra as she struggles to become the ruler of Egypt. Director Tomers Vuloon joins me now via Zoom with soprano Jasmine Habersham, who plays the leading role as Cleopatra. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be back. Hi, thank you for having me. Tomer, I know you are very excited about this new co-production with Israeli opera. Would you tell us about the first production you created with the Israeli opera in 2017? Yes. So back in 2017, we were invited to come back to Israel to do Julius Caesar in their festival, their summer festival in Akko, or as it's known uh, in English, Acre, uh, which is a city in the north of Israel, where Julius Caesar actually on his way to Egypt stopped by. And uh, on the way to uh, the theater, uh, there is a street named Julius Caesar, and we would uh, pass by that street every day. But the production itself was done outdoors, uh, 
in a Crusaders fortress, a 12th century Crusaders fortress. And it was an incredible experience to be there and to create it there and now to bring it to Atlanta. Oh, I can only imagine the thrill of being in such proximity to history. Of course, in Israel, you would have that every day, essentially. But for musical purposes, that must have added quite a bit for you. It was very inspiring. This town, Akko, is also a symbol of collaboration between Jews and Arabs. It's a very important town that demonstrates that uh, cohabitation is possible in Israel. So it was Mm. very meaningful to do that. Oh, I can imagine adding that layer. For this production, how did you work with the Israeli opera to adapt it for the stage at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center? I imagine that stage is much larger than the space you had in that 12th century fortress. Yeah, there are two major differences. Uh, Number one is acoustical. And in Israel, because it was outdoors, it was amplified. Baroque operas should not be amplified. So, or, or you know, if if they have to be amplified, they can, but it's much better to enjoy them in an acoustically pristine house like the Cobb Energy Center. So we are super excited that we're going to have a chance to do that as our very first show back at the Cobb Energy Center after 20 months of being away due to COVID. Uh, the second big difference is, as you mentioned, uh, this is a production that was created for an outdoors with a stunning backdrop of a Crusaders fortress. And we are now moving it to a major theater. And our set designer, Sasha Lisiansky, who is a brilliant Israeli-Russian designer, is actually teaching a course in Tel Aviv University where he teaches set design. And he is teaching his students how to adapt a production from outdoors into indoors. Mm-hmm. Hollywood in the 20th century took great liberties with ancient historical subjects. Think the Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, and of course, Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor, Rex Harrison, and Richard Burton. Jasmine, you wrote an article I read in Arts ATL about the misconceptions some people have from the portrayal of Cleopatra in popular culture. Would you elaborate on that and tell us your take on Cleopatra? I, of course, kind of did my own research about the character, and we kind of have to realize that the way she is usually perceived, of course, is the sexual, you know, goddess that seduces Julius Caesar, but she was way, way more than that. She was, you know, actually not known as being the most beautiful woman, but had a lot more wit and a lot more smarts than she was given. And I think something we have to take into fact that the interpretation of how she was written was often from, you know, whoever won the war. So we have a very, you know, over centuries of time, a very different perspective of her. But she had a lot of smarts to her that we really don't portray as much, I believe. And What tropes about Cleopatra are you hoping to dismantle in this performance? I hope that I can show the real authenticity of who she was and and how she develops throughout 
each of, and particularly each aria throughout the opera. I hope that I can show that she has these different ranges of emotions and also that, you know, she knows what she wants and does everything she does to get it. Let's talk about some of the arias. And Tomer, please feel free to join in with Jasmine here. What can you tell us about Non Disperar Kisa? So uh, for Non Disperar, um, <laughs> to me, that aria is uh, like, listen, Ptolomeo, go off and and be with the women, I can do a much better job as being queen. This is her brother, she's Yes, her brother Ptolemeo. So it's a very much like, <laughs> you know, I can do this way better than you. And it's really like, you know, you have no business. So it's a really uh, aggressive uh, teasing that she does at Ptolemeo. That's really fun. I think it's a, a, a perfect aria to start the introduction to Cleopatra. You know, she has some of the most incredibly diverse range of emotions to express both vocally and dramatically in the opera. And it starts with this show-stopping aria that really establishes her as the person with power in this strange family, in this dysfunctional family. And then Cleopatra moves on to sing such diverse and challenging other arias from the coleratura flourishes in that tempesta to being completely seductive and alluring in this very famous aria of Adoro Pupile to being heart-wrenching, desperate in Piangero. about this role is that it is so iconic and it's been relished by generations of sopranos from Beverly Sills to Natalie Desai. So for us to be able to have Jasmine make her role debut as Cleopatra and join this pantheon of famous sopranos is a big deal for us and I can't wait for it. Oh, I can imagine it's a big deal for you too, Jasmine. Like, what's going through your head here? I'm just... I, you know, there's times in your life when you're like, I just know this is a moment I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing. And the people that I'm working with, again, I'm so grateful to Tomer and, and, and for this opportunity, but just, just the mere fact that I get to sing Baroque music, this is my very first time. And I feel very at one with the style of music because it's so freeing. 
Baroque music is very similar to jazz mm -hmm. in the sense where you have this bass line and then you have this beautiful melody and then you can embroider it and, and embellish it. And I have not had the chance to do that. And I'm just so incredibly grateful to learn how to do this style of music and to portray this extremely powerful character. So it's just, it's a dream come true, literally. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Atlanta Opera Artistic Director Tomer Swulun and soprano Jasmine Habersham about their upcoming production of Julius Caesar at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. Jasmine, you make such a great point about jazz and music in the Baroque era because improvisation was so highly valued in the 18th century. And then in the 19th century, composers became a bit more rigid. But Tomer, I know you too are so thrilled about presenting this opera in particular and Baroque opera in general seems to have come into, can I say, a revival? Is, is it fair to call it that? Do we have newfound appreciation for the beauty of this art form? Uh, perhaps. I, I can tell you that when I was doing the research for presenting this in Atlanta, I was absolutely shocked to discover that in our 41 years history, Atlanta has never done a real Baroque opera. It has never done a handle before, certainly not Julius Caesar. And uh, I'm not sure Atlanta is, is a Baroque town when it comes to opera. We're leaning much more toward Puccini, Verdi, Mozart, et cetera, et cetera. But there is an absolute place to introduce our audiences to something that is such a jewel in the repertoire of operatic masterpieces. So we're super excited to present it here. And with attention to historical performance practice, to what was appropriate to the time in terms of the voices that were featured in the 18th century, you too are having high voices, in this case, women portray male lead roles. That's right. Yeah. And vocally, uh, it's a very interesting tradition that Handel had in the time, uh, writing the lead role for a castrato, which is a very bold choice. Because when you think about Julius Caesar, a very strong leader, somebody who we think is aggressive, manipulative, strong, macho almost, here is Handel assigning it to the highest register possible. So that is a bold choice on Handel's part. Now, in our days, obviously, thankfully, the habit of castrating people so they, they would sound different doesn't exist anymore. And so now it's assigned to often to countertenors that are able to sing it in a falsetto way. But it's also often sung by a female singer, a mezzo-soprano. What I find interesting is that the opera explores gender fluidity, but also vocal fluidity. So in addition to the fact that in our production, a mezzo is singing the title role, there are two more mezzos that are singing pants roles. 
So they're singing the roles of men. Those characters are Sesto, the son of Pompey, and Nerone, who is a confidant in this show. So it's a, it's a very interesting aspect of the show, exploring this fluidity of gender bender, but also of vocal fluidity. You have taken delight in describing this production as a kind of a Game of Thrones style. What do you mean by that? You know, Handel wrote a piece about historical characters. And we can do the research about it for years, reading books about the Roman Republic and how it turned into a dictatorship. And then eventually uh, all those emperors came after Caesar. You mentioned some of the Hollywood fascination uh, from the movie with Elizabeth Taylor to Richard Burton to HBO's Rome, which I highly recommend, to Shakespeare writing plays about Julius Caesar. But what we took to heart is that Handel took liberties with this story. And with his librettist, Francesco Nicola Heim, he focused on universal themes. He focused on war, politics, violence, greed, desire, death, all all of the machinations of great plays, of great operas. And all those themes, they transcend time, they transcend place. And our production reflects that. Our world, rather than being a replica of Egypt, is choosing to mythologize the world, to make it more universal. So we're looking at the world through a lens of almost pop culture and drawing inspirations from shows like Game of Thrones, Mad Max, Lord of the Rings, aesthetic that is not about historical accuracy as much as it is about mythology and storytelling that is timeless. Oh, wow. I got to tell you, this is a side note. Going back to 18th century Italy and the practice of the castrati, I guess it must have started in the 17th century. In any case, I'm an Italophile, but I got to tell you, when I got to that part of my study of music history, I just kind of gasped and shrieked and could not believe that this was not only a common practice, but that these singers were the superstars of their time. It just seems brutal. How did they ever get away with such a thing? I have no idea. And I'm very grateful that we no longer live in this time. I don't know. I would be curious to hear Jasmine's perspective as a singer. Creepy? Can we say creepy (laughs) at best? Wow. You know, this is actually making me go back into my (laughs) music history annals. But one thing I remember is that with the castrati, like it was kind of like this whole kind of club of you kind of developing these not to say like a boy choir kind of thing, but they developed these stars over time. And I mean, of course, I would think it would be very brutal um, to castrate, <laughs> but uh, it gave the the voice that they were able to sing the music in a really uh, stylistic and beautiful way. <laughs> it's amazing what people had to do in order to achieve a certain musical sound. Um, I'm glad that's not happening today. <laughs> you know, when, when singers are telling me that they suffer for arts, 
uh, I, I tell them that <laughs> they don't even know what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> this is so true. I guess in music history study, I never got a clear answer about why these young guys bought into it and who... Or how did it start? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who perpetrated it, okay? Now, back to important things, but thank you for indulging me. But you know, there's one interesting point that I never thought about until you asked this, Lois, and that is in the story of Ptolemeo, a uh, historical story. He had a, a close advisor, and I can't remember his name, but he appears in a lot of those historical depictions in Hollywood. And that close advisor was a eunuch. And somehow, Handel was not interested in bringing this very prominent character which is a huge part of the governance of Ptolemyo. And instead, he chose to bring uh, Aquila, the head of the army, and not that eunuch, although the eunuch would have made perfect sense in the world of Castrati. Interesting. Also, I think it's important to mention gender as well. I think to have those different voices for men to perform it, and they could perform men and also women, I think that's also a huge factor as well. Yes. And... In terms of our representation, not having to have the lily white skin and blazing blue eyes of Elizabeth Taylor it, it is an important step in the right direction, too. Yes. Um, you know, it's an honor to perform this and to perform it as an African-American. And I, at least for me, I hope that Opera kind of takes note in that you can tell a story without race being a factor. And something, you know, Cleopatra was Macedonian Greek. So granted, we could stick to the specificity of that. But at the same token, I think it's a much broader understanding, very much like Hamilton, the musical, where you can tell the story and it be the story and not the person's skin color. I think we can kind of take ourselves out of that element. And in, in a way, I think it helps you focus more on what the story really means versus the race. Oh, I think that's excellent insight. Tomer, you and the Atlanta Opera were trailblazers with COVID safety protocols. You commissioned that report and brought on Dr. Carlos Del Rio. I think it was a 37-page report that you ended up with before returning to some performance. What can we expect in terms of COVID safety protocols at the Cobb Energy Center? Maximum safety. So uh, Dr. Del Rio and our safety committee is still working with us in full swing. And we're recording this in mid-October. Uh, his advice, uh, which is completely adopted by the organization, is to require all members of the company to be vaccinated, all audience members to be vaccinated. This will be enforced at the entrance. During the production, during the show, audience will be required uh, to have masks on. This is a very common practice right now, uh, not only in Atlanta, the Alliance Theater, the Symphony, but also in all the opera houses virtually that I know from the Metropolitan Opera to Chicago and San Francisco. So we're basically following the trend. My hope is that uh, we will emerge out of this pandemic soon. Oh, yes. 
Will the singers wear masks? So the singers, first of all, are all fully vaccinated. And during the rehearsals in the next three weeks, they will be masked so that we, are, we have maximum uh, safety. But as we get into the final rehearsals, the very final rehearsals and performances, the singers will remove their masks. One of the reasons we program Julius Caesar is that it is an opera that requires smaller forces because it's a Baroque opera. Uh, it does not have a course and it has a smaller than a typical full orchestra of 60, 70 people in the pit. It's only 30, 35 orchestra members. Uh, there are about eight principals and 12 dancers. So in a way, programming Julius Caesar, which I wanted to do anyway, uh, was very fortuitous when it comes to safety during what we hope is the end of this pandemic. Atlanta Opera Artistic Director Tomer Zulun and soprano Jasmine Habersham, who portrays Cleopatra. The Atlanta Opera presents Julius Caesar this Saturday, November 6th, with select dates running through November 14th at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from opera singer-turned-restaurateur Alexander Smalls. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Alexander Smalls is a classically trained musician who became a renowned professional opera singer. He's also a chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. When he released his latest volume, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen, Smalls joined me via Zoom. He began with explaining why he believes that in the U.S., food and music are inextricably linked, especially in African-American culture. Well, you know, it is a cultural expression that permeates the entire spectrum of the African-American life, the landscape of essentially how we 
live life through the lens of our colorful culture, our rhythmic uh, music, our expression of food from garden to pot to plate. Um, it has always been, especially for me, the two disciplines that have shaped and molded who I am as an adult. Music was there to help me cultivate a sense of belonging and also to create a fanciful life. And food was their ultimate pleasure. But, you know, as a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, who was a city farmer and had a large garden. And I would work that garden. Now, I had no interest in working my mother's flower plants, <laughs> especially the rose bushes. But I would get my hands in that dirt and plant some seeds and, and uh, take care of some tomatoes and butter beans, squash, and watermelons. I loved it. And then that transition that happened from the garden to the pot, to the plate. And music was the backdrop for all of it. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. You, you write that far beyond food-inspired tunes, such as Beans and Cornbread, one of my favorite, or Pepper Pot and Grits Ain't Groceries, in the African-American cultural canon, Food and music served a dual purpose. Would you further elaborate? <laughs> I think I answered both questions at once. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, the subject for me is an endless soundtrack of my life. And this is why the book Males, Music, and Muses really was so gifted for me at this time, having written three books, having had a, a, a number of careers, you know, I look back at how the music and the food created every container for all of my experiences in life and continue to. I mean, I, I essentially, I opened my first restaurant to take my kitchen public to essentially feed and serve and nurture the world. So it is an ongoing theme that resonates with me strongly personally, but I feel particularly with the African-American uh, community. I mean, the two were so accessible, you know, because you could make up a tune and clap your hands and, 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 and slap your hip and hum your way to glory if you needed to. <laughs> and if you had something good to eat on that, on that journey, it made it even better. <laughs> oh, I have to say, your laugh is, is such a wonderful reflection of that joy and definitely the laugh of a trained opera singer. <laughs> if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with restaurateur, cookbook author, and renowned opera singer Alexander Smalls. We're discussing his book, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen. When did you first realize you wanted to explore the food of the African diaspora? Well, you know, um, uh, it started as a child um, without any consciousness that I was planting the seeds 
to really dive into the concept of food as lore and history and, and a tale, if you will. I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, already a transplant from the family's foundational birthplace, which was Charleston and Beaufort in the Gullah Islands. And when my grandfather moved the family to Spartanburg, which was maybe three and a half hours away, we took all of our customs. So none of my friends ate the food that I ate. Their food was more Piedmont, Appalachia, but it wasn't as defined as Gullah Geechee cuisine, that low country food that exists in the, in the perimeter of Charleston, Savannah, the Gullah Islands. And so I knew that we were different <laughs> just by what we ate and how we cooked and how we prepared. And my grandfather would lead us, oh, every uh, few months back to Charleston in a car caravan. And we would, you know, go there periodically, taking things to family members down there. But coming back with moss from the Gullah country, hanging from the, remember when we had antennas as kids on cars, and we put moss in the back window, and there would be crates of, live crab and, and there would be oysters and all of these things, produce that my, my family would bring back from there. And then there would be this big, not really a party, but it turns into a party because the music is playing and we're in the backyard with the newspaper on the picnic table and boiling crab in the big black pot outside in the backyard and a table picking crab. Everyone was picking crabs and and it would be this incredible ritualist gathering that always stayed with me. So as I developed and went through my classical training and my classical career, performing you know, throughout Europe, and I came to the point where I understood that what I wanted to do, actually what happened really is that I hit the glass ceiling, if you will, as a black male opera singer not able to move into the next level. I had sung in the opera houses uh, throughout Europe, Paris, Rome, Germany, at Frankfurt. So after singing all over Europe, coming back to America, auditioning, trying to break through, particularly at the Metropolitan Opera House, I finally decided that whatever I was going to do professionally, I had to not only own a seat, at the table, I needed to own the table. And that propelled me to open my first restaurant. 18 months after that disastrous last audition, I began to develop the foundation and building out my first restaurant, Cafe Beulah, in New York City, which was 1993, I believe. Gosh, it's so mind-boggling. That wasn't so long ago, and yet, I was interviewing Morris Robinson, wonderful yes. opera singer who lives in Atlanta. We are blessed with, oh gosh, a, a whole group of internationally acclaimed singers who happen to live in Atlanta. And Morris was talking about why he did not take on the role of Porky until 2016, and he only did that because La Scala came calling for just the reason you said he wanted to make sure 
that he could get enough roles under his belt so that he wouldn't be typecast and Porgy wouldn't be the only opera for which he'd be considered. But just in that generation between you, there were many more roles available to him. Yes. I mean, uh, and, and he is a fine singer. I had the pleasure of hosting him at my supper club. Richard Parsons and I reopened Minton's Playhouse in 2013 in New York. And one of the patrons of the Met bought out the club to have a private evening with Morris. You can imagine how special that was. And as the executive chef, I created a meal that complemented uh, that very special evening. So bravo to him. And he was very wise to make those choices. Unfortunately, I didn't have those choices available to me because essentially it was Old Man River or it was Porgy and Bess in the United States. And I remember when the Houston Grand Opera came calling and offered me the role of Jake. Uh, I was a young grad student at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. I had this amazing teacher from Israel and she was extraordinarily happy for me, but also afraid for me. And she said, I will give my blessings for you to take off with the Houston Grand Opera and have this experience. But let's say it will be two to three months and you come back. And I said, yes, of course. Well, two and a half years later. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, when you take uh, the boy out of the country and show him Paris and show him Frankfurt and Berlin and Rome and London, it's hard to put a stop to that. Oh, yes. And a Grammy you did not mention. Oh, gosh. You know, all of that that came with that moment. You know, I was so young and so impressionable. I didn't realize that in that moment, I was also essentially writing my fate. And it was, while it was the debut, it was also the, the kind of, finale, if you will, of my classical career. I mean, after Porgy, I I did a lot of recital work, stuff like that. Like many uh, Black male opera singers who moved to Europe so they could sing the classical music, I chose to move to Europe to study and also do recital work, but not opera, because the opera houses of Europe, particularly the ones in Germany, would exhaust the singers. I mean, they would literally come home with no voices and no opportunity to move into the possibility of large opera companies here. So it was a, it was a difficult and demanding time. And I simply decided that I needed to change vehicles. My two great loves was food and music. So I got out of one car and, and got into the <laughs> other one. <laughs> and I hit the gas pedal. <laughs> cookbook author, chef, and renowned opera singer Alexander Smalls, discussing his most recent book, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen. 
We'll return to more of our conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my interview with the acclaimed opera singer, restaurateur, and cookbook author, Chef Alexander Smalls. His new cookbook is Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen. Chapter 4 of the new book is titled Opera and All of the recipes in that section are for fish and seafood. I asked Alexander Smalls if that was his personal tribute to the opera Porgy and Bess, which is set in a poor community of fishermen in Charleston. Fish row, you know? Yes, without question, this was my moment to, I mean, Porgy and Bess, extremely dear to me for all the right reasons. It was a low country Charleston moment, reminded me so much of my grandfather and my ancestors, my cousins and great aunts and uncles who had, you know, little farms in the low country when I was a boy. And I I remember the street vendors who peddled their goods. Uh, And so, yeah, I wanted to create an ambiance to not only celebrate that, but also raise the consciousness of the bounty of the land from that particular part of the world. I was intrigued with how the title of Chapter 5 pertains to the recipes that follow. (laughs) I have a weakness for divas, <laughs> and, and I have a weakness for opening nights and meat and chicken. <laughs> I have known some extraordinary um, divas, been blessed to you know, be in their company, be a part of their stories and listen to their stories. One of the great phenomenons of, of divas that I have known um, and shared company range from Leontine Price to Kathleen Battle, Jesse Norman, Martina Aurora, uh, you know, Shirley Barrett. I was able to really engage all of them. And then you go to the Divas of Jazz with Dee Dee Bridgewater, you know, and um, uh, uh, you have these women who created so much artistry. This chapter was about putting it on a plate, if you will. My personal relationship with Luciano Pavarotti in my youth and, you know, sharing a love for food. We once cooked together 
and I used to babysit his daughters when they would come to New York, you know, so, and he's a diva. He was a diva for I sure. I should say. <laughs> what, what did you cook with Pavarotti? Oh, wow. Seafood. I mean, you know, uh, seafood and pasta. You know, he's Italian. I lived in Rome for three years. I was his assistant, mind you. I was the prep chef. And this also was before I became a bona fide chef restaurateur. I was still a young opera singer getting my wings, but a tremendous love for food as he did. In fact, Luciano introduced me to strawberry ice cream with a balsamic glaze. Ooh, so he way ahead of his time with uh, the savory and sweet. The book contains a curated set of recipes which you describe as a playlist of essential African-American dishes. In fact, the appendix to this book contains playlists for each chapter, which I loved. And I wondered which came first, the playlists from which you decided the recipes or music that you thought would go well with those recipes? Well, the food came first. I mean, no question or pause. I curated my kitchen offerings. And, and again, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity to make something very personal. I mean, this is my third cookbook, and it was my opportunity to curate recipes that I felt were signature pieces to my Southern landscape. And so I created the recipes first, and then they were the inspiration for the music that I tied to each chapter. And the playlists cover such a wonderful range of styles for people who may be intimidated by opera singer. I must assure readers, listeners, not to worry. You will have your fair share of all genres. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with restaurateur, cookbook author, and renowned opera singer, Alexander Smalls. We're discussing his book, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen. I love the way you compare a well-stocked pantry to a jukebox. How are they similar? Well, you know, you have to have, you know, your ingredients on hand, whether that's to make a dish or to create a musical moment. When I was a kid, my father had a nightclub called the Hilltop House, and uh, it was literally on the hill. <laughs> and on weekends, particularly Sundays after Sunday dinner on the side porch, he would gather me and my friends uh, who were willing, and most everybody was willing, and he would lock us into the nightclub with the task of, you know, you can play the jukebox, he would put it on free play, so we didn't have to put any money in it, and we could act out and play in the club, but we had to clean it, too. 
There is no such thing as a free jukebox. Huh? No, <laughs> much like a free ride. So we would rush to clean that thing to, uh, to perfection so we could spend all the time on the stage with the jukebox going and the turned off mic pretending to be stars. <laughs> oh, so uh, years before karaoke, you were there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you quote the legendary chef Alice Waters of Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, regarding another culinary great, Chef Edna Lewis. What, mm. what was the legacy of Chef Edna Lewis? Well, you know, Edna Lewis was the first Alice Waters. Edna Lewis truly branded, crafted, brought to view farm to table. She was a, a, an extraordinarily gifted woman. Aside from her cooking, she was an incredible seamstress as well, as well as my mother actually. Uh, but Edna brought literally the farm experience into the kitchen, into the dining room in a unique way that even Alice Waters had to give her her due. She was a pioneer and she was essentially the face of the African-American kitchen. Extraordinary woman. I had the opportunity to meet and know her. Also my, my late uncle Joe, who was a chef here in Harlem many, many years prior, when Edna Lewis was, was here as well. And my aunt, who was a classical pianist, would talk about this woman when I was a kid. And so to grow up and then meet her and then be inspired by her truly was a gift. It must have been extraordinary for you. In your acknowledgments, you write, tracing the steps of our ancestral people, we fused together a culinary conversation in the kitchen. Alexander Smalls, thank you for this culinary conversation. Thank you for having me, letting me sit at your table, and I've enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, as have I. And I do hope, after the plague, to visit one of your wonderful restaurants in Harlem. You'd be most welcome. Opera singer, restaurateur, and cookbook author Alexander Smalls. More information about his latest cookbook, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African American Kitchen, is available on our website wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., prepare your funny bone. We'll be talking with Gilbert Lewand, founder of the Red Clay Comedy Festival, and Atlantic comedian Clayton English. Plus, the world premiere of Hometown Boy is on stage now at Actors Express. We'll hear from playwright Keiko Green 
and director Rebecca Ware. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E at Latta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.